Wisdom from Above with Dr. Harlan Betts. Greeting, podcast friends. This is Harlan Betts, and I'm delighted to welcome you to our Wisdom from Above podcast, where we go beyond the reasoning of man to the revelation of God. Today's our 84th podcast. In this seventh season, we're focusing on the last days as predicted by Jesus' phenomenal prophecy in Matthew 24 and 25. From that passage, we learn that the tribulation will be a time of cataclysmic international warfare and a time of catastrophic environmental destruction. Despair, destruction, and death will reign. Life will be little more than an intense battle for survival. It'll be a time of darkness, a time of fear, a time of war, a time of persecution, a time of starvation, a time of environmental chaos, a time of fighting for survival. It will be anything but normal. And that's very important to understand as we look at this next section of Scripture in the phenomenal prophecy of Jesus. I do have some good news for those of you who know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. We will not be here in the tribulation. We will not experience the chaos, the calamity, and the carnage of the great tribulation. Let's listen to what Jesus says as he explains what's going to happen. The passage is Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 to 44. And the event, I will tell you at the outset, I believe, the event he's speaking of is the rapture of the church. First, Jesus describes it as a day no one knows in verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven but my Father only. Jesus Christ says that no one knows the day that he's going to return. But that doesn't keep so-called prophets and scholars from trying to set a date. Edgar Wisenhunt sold 4.5 million copies of his book, 88 Reasons Why the Lord is Coming Back in 88, 1988. Trinity Broadcasting Network interrupted their programming to tell people how to get ready for the rapture, but it didn't happen. The next day, their normal programming simply resumed. Bill Koenig's International News carried an article in which Bible code expert Tom Gaston researched the hidden Bible codes and revealed that he discovered that everything points to September 11, 1999 as the day of the rapture. It didn't happen. Probably one of the most well-known episodes in recent times was when Harold Camping, president of Family Radio, predicted that Christ would return May 21, 2011. It didn't happen. And when that date passed, he said, well, it was actually supposed to be October 21 of 2011. And obviously, that didn't happen. His adherents were so convinced that Judgment Day would occur that many sold everything they had 
to announce this prediction all across America. Do I think we should quit our jobs, sell our homes, put on white robes, and meet at some safe place for Christ to return? No. What do I think? I think far too many people have tried to set a date for the return of Christ. They've gotten trapped in a desire to predict the unpredictable. They've gotten trapped in a desire to unscrew the inscrutable. Jesus said, no one knows the day nor the hour. Not any man, not any angel, and according to Mark twelve thirty two, not even the Son of God. In his humanity, where Jesus voluntarily did not use some of his divine attributes, even he didn't know the day he would return. Now, this, that's difficult for us to understand. There's no shame in admitting that our finite minds cannot fully grasp all the truths and mysteries revealed in the Bible. We may find it difficult to understand why this statement is true, and we may not understand how this statement is true, but we should not have any difficulty accepting that it is true. God said it. That settles it. No man knows the day nor the hour. Ivor Powell, known international as the man from Wales and as an excellent teacher of the Bible, suggests that God the Father reserved for himself certain details of eternal events. He also suggests that God the Son, by his own volition, abstained from acquainting himself with those details so that he could, in every possible sense, be fully man. Someday, when mysteries will be banished forever, we shall be even more amazed at how much God the Son gave up for our sakes. Ivor Paul concludes with this comment. Since the exact timing of the Lord's return is a divinely preserved secret, only very foolish people attempt to set a specific time for the Savior's reappearing. So first Jesus says, it is a day that no one knows. No one knows the day nor the hour. Second, Jesus describes it as, a hap- as happening at a time when no one expects it. That's in verses 37 to 39. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. It will be like it was in the days of Noah. Life in Noah's day was continuing as usual. Everything was going on as normal. People in Noah's day were pursuing their regular activities, eating and drinking and marrying and buying and selling and building. And that's the way it will be when Christ returns for the church. And then he will begin to pour out his wrath in a series of tribulational judgments. There is clearly a time that this cannot be in reference to. This cannot be a reference to Christ's return at the end of the tribulation. You may say, well, why not? 
Well, the answer is because life will not be continuing as usual during the tribulation. People will not be pursuing their regular activities in the tribulation. The tribulation will be a time of catastrophic environmental destruction and cataclysmic international warfare. As I said before, despair, destruction, and death will reign during the tribulation. Life will be little more than an intense battle for survival. It will be anything but normal. Two supernaturally empowered witnesses will be authorized and pardoned by God to prevent rain, to turn blood, water into blood, to smite the earth with plagues. For three and a half years, these two witnesses will be indestructible. Those who try to attack or capture them will be destroyed. Is that normal? No. One third of all trees, vegetation, and the earth's surface will be burned. Is that normal? No. One third of all freshwater and seawater will be polluted or poisonous or turned to blood. Is that normal? No. Evil demons that have been locked up since Noah's flood will be loosed from the bottomless pit and will have power to personally attack and physically harm human beings. Is that normal? No. One third of the population of the entire earth will be killed in wars. Is that normal? No. The Antichrist is going to rule a ten-nation Western Confederacy, demand that people worship him, erect an idol to himself in the temple, seek to establish a one-world government over which he is the supreme ruler. Is that normal? Well, it's normal that there are people who have tried to do things similar to this. But no, that is not normal. An army from the east, composed of 200 million ground troops, will march into Israel to fight against the Antichrist. Is that normal? No. Therefore, the return that Jesus is talking about here cannot be his return at the end of the tribulation. It must refer to his return before the cataclysmic judgments of the tribulation. So there is an event, which it clearly must be. This must be a reference to the rapture of church-age believers. We read in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, that the Lord will shout and the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those who are still believers will join them in being caught up in the air, to meet Jesus in the air and forever to be with the Lord. That's the rapture, where Jesus comes suddenly at a time when everything is going on as normal and snatches every believer in Christ off the face of the earth and brings them up to heaven with him. Immediately following the rapture of the church, the great tribulation will begin. So Jesus goes on in verses 40 and 41 and explains what it'll be like when he returns to rapture the church. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, the other will be left. Now there's a couple things that are very clear. Everyone agrees that there's a division and a destination. First of all, there's a division. One is taken, the other's left. Secondly, there's a destination. 
One is taken somewhere. The other is left somewhere. Now, some Bible scholars, a few, take the Lord's words in verse 40 here, about two to be in the field, one taken, the other left, and say that the word taken means they're taken in judgment at the end of the tribulation. And the others left will say, well, that means the others left to go into the kingdom. And they say this is in keeping with the term taken away in verse 39 and the illustration of mankind being taken away by the judgment of flood. Well, I want to share three objections to that. First, the word the Lord uses and saying one will be taken at his coming in verse 40 is a different Greek word than that which is used for those who were taken in the flood in verse 39. The word used in connection with Noah's flood in verse 39 is from the Greek root iro. And according to Bauer, Arndt, and Gingrich's Greek-English lexicon, it means to take away or remove by force, or even by killing. So that's what was used concerning the flood. The word used in connection with the Lord's return in verse 40 is from the Greek word paralambano. And according to Reinecker and Rogers' linguistic key to the Greek New Testament, that means to take to oneself, or to take along with, or to take away from. This very same verb, paralambano, is the very, very same verb the Lord uses in John 14.3 when he says, to the disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be afraid. In my Father's house there are many mansions. I go there to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and take you unto myself. That's the same word. Another reason why I believe it's referring to the time before the tribulation and the rapture rather than the time at the end of the tribulation at his second return is because of what is going on. The picture the Lord uses concerning the time of this return is a sudden, unexpected removal from a mode of life that is without concern and without any foreboding of any impending catastrophe. It takes place when things are continuing as normal, a time of eating and drinking, a time of marrying and giving in marriage, this could not be true at the end of the tribulation. At the end of the tribulation, life is anything but normal. It's a time of death and destruction. People are either struggling to survive or just crying out for death. A third reason I would like to give, and this is not a, a major reason, it's really a kind of an argument from silence, but if the Lord is not describing the rapture in this verse, then the only description of the blessed hope and glorious reunion with our Lord from his own lips would be that one verse in John chapter 14. I will come again and take you unto myself. So I believe there is a division. Two men are in the field, one is taken, the other left. Two women at the grocery store, one taken, the other left. And there is a destination. One is taken up, received, rescued, 
caught up by the Lord to be with him. Caught up by the Lord in the rapture to go to heaven. The other is left. Left behind. Abandoned. Ruined. Left by the Lord to go into the tribulation and the cataclysmic judgments of that period. So then Jesus closes this section with a couple exhortations in 42 to 44. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. This is where we get the phrase, that Jesus is coming like a thief in the night. You don't know that he's coming. You don't expect that he's coming. Everything seems to be going on as normal. And the two challenges are, first, be ever watching. You do not know the day or the hour your Lord is coming. Be constantly vigilant. Annie Johnson Flint, a Christian poetess, says it well. It's not for a sign we're watching, for wonders above and below, the pouring of vials in judgment, the sounding of trumpets of woe. It's not for a day we're looking, not even the time yet to be, when the earth shall be filled with God's glory as the waters cover the sea. It's not for a king we're longing to make the world kingdoms his own. It's not for a judge who shall summon the nations of earth to his throne. No, for these, though we know they're coming, for they are but adjuncts of him, before whom all glory is clouded, besides whom all splendor grows dim. We wait for the Lord, our beloved, our comforter, master, and friend, the substance of all that we hope for, beginning of faith in its end. We watch for our Savior and Bridegroom, who loved us and made us his own. For him we are looking and longing, for Jesus and Jesus alone. She is exactly right. We need to be ever watching for the return of our bridegroom, the one who loved us and gave his life for us. He's coming for us secretly, suddenly, unexpectedly, when everything's going on as normal, and he will rapture us out. He will catch us up to be with him. Second, we're told, be ever ready. Jesus is coming at a time you do not expect. So how does one get ready for the rapture? Well, of course, uh, step one would be to be saved, to be leave in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but has everlasting life. If you have not believed, you'll be left behind. But then the second way to be ready is to be constantly abiding. We're told in 1 John chapter 2, 28, that if we abide in him, then we'll be like him and we will not be ashamed at his coming. If we don't abide in him, we'll forfeit rewards. Jesus talked about this like uh, about a person who is tending a home when the master is gone, not knowing when the master would come back. I read about a gardener whose master was gone for an unknown amount of time. After the master had been gone for over a year, someone asked the gardener why he worked so diligently 
and so daily on a garden whose master was out of the country. The gardener's answer was revealing. He said, I don't know when he'll come back, but when he does, I want him to find me faithful and the garden beautiful. How about you? What are you doing while your master and bridegroom is away? Are you watching and waiting and working for him? The Bible challenges us to be godly, to be witnessing, to be guarding, and to be growing. There was a 70s song based upon this passage of Scripture. It went something like this. Two men walking up a hill. One disappears and one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. You see, Jesus could come at any moment. He could come today. He could come right now. Are you ready? Or will you be left behind? Thank you for carving out the time to join me for this podcast of Wisdom from Above. If you find these podcasts helpful, please give them a five-star rating and subscribe so you get a notice of each new weekly podcast. Share the podcast with your family and friends. This is Dr. Harlan Betts, wishing you a great week and God's blessings. I look forward to meeting with you again next week as Wisdom from Above continues to explore what the Bible says about the last days. Thank you for joining me in this passionate quest for Wisdom from Above.